The presenting sponsor of Sober Stories is Gia, your new favorite non-alcoholic aperitif. And with Gia, we're bringing our best without numbing the good stuff. Gia boasts a collection of zero-proof social tonics inspired by Mediterranean aperitif culture. By combining their signature mix of botanicals, herbals, and natural nervines, herbs known to soothe the mind and bring the body back from burnout, Gia has created original, craveable flavors that don't mimic or make you miss the boozy ones. No nasties here, no artificial flavors, no sugar, no alcohol, just like we like it. Here's a true story for you. Gia was the first non-alcoholic drink I ever tried on my own sober journey. It was a beautiful introduction to the industry of companies bringing the fun without the booze. Grab the first sip kit and make it easy. You'll get a bottle of Gia, four cans of their ready-to-drink spritz, a pour spout, and free shipping. The new Gia Ginger is one of my favorites. Save 20% off your first purchase at drinkgia.com. That's D-R-I-N-K-G-H-I-A.com with code STORIES. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be chief story steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? It's Friday, so you know what that means. Welcome to one of my favorite episodes of Sober Stories to Date. I know I shouldn't play favorites, but this conversation came at a really important time for me, and I think you will get as much joy out of it as I did. Today, I get to share my interview with Lazarus Letcher, a PhD candidate in American Studies who focuses on the history of Black and Indigenous liberation and queer studies. Laz lives on Tiwa Pueblo land in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and is a solo musician and violinist with the indie folk band Eileen and the In-Betweens and a Black queer art collective, Stages of Tectonic Blackness. Laz works as a tech consultant and is passionate about bringing more trans and Black voices into the field. And in their free time, they can be found gallivanting along the Rio Grande with their pups Mahler and Billy Holiday. Laz and I spent a large part of our conversation discussing the inextricable relationship between sobriety and identity, which feels particularly relevant to me in our post-Roe world. Laz truly gives us a masterclass on race, identity, gender, and the way the recovery world interacts with all of it. I'm deeply grateful for their story. After you give this episode a listen, share your biggest takeaway with us by tagging at we are sober stories and Laz at l.nuzzles. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories family, I am so excited to welcome Lazarus to the podcast today. Lazarus, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. How's it going today? How are you doing? How's how's the weather there? It's pretty swell. I'm in Albuquerque on Tiwa Pueblo land, and we're having our first real monsoon season mm. in a very long time. So I'm enjoying this exotic thing called humidity and <laughs> a garden that I don't have to water every single day. It's quite so lovely. good for the skin too, right? Yes, I am simply glowing all the time. <laughs> it's not sweat. Definitely not sweat. Yeah. Yeah, you're glistening. I love it. Well, I know we gave the listeners kind of a rundown of, of you and some of your work and, and what you do. But for those who are not familiar with you and not familiar with the space you hold and the work you do, can you give us a rundown of who you are, where you are, who you do life with, kind of the high notes first? Yeah. I am a trans dude about town. Um, 
I've been sober for four and a half years. I am working on my PhD in American studies. I'm a musician. I'm a writer. I am a dog parent. It's very <laughs> important. And now I work in tech. So I wear a few hats, but I think yeah, I a lot of hats. <laughs> What's your sober date? Uh, December 1st, 2017. Okay. I love it. Mine's September 27th, 2017. So when oh, people nice. say four and a half years, I'm like, oh, we're almost the same, same age as babies. Yeah. And I know that a lot of your work and a lot of what you share online is, is wrapped up in your identity as a queer man. Before we jump into it, I want to know about how that impacts and how that informs the work you do. But I also want to know your story. How did you come to this recovery space? How did you come to this alcohol-free life? What does that look like for you over the time? Yeah. So I think a lot of kind of mainstream recovery wants to separate identity and sobriety, Mm -hmm. and that's not possible. I'm a big believer that you have to bring your whole self to the table to heal your whole self. Mm. I always knew I wasn't a girl growing up. Mm -hmm. I always knew something was different. And that last generation of trans folks that didn't quite have the language to describe what was happening. And alcohol was a really easy way very early on to just kind of quiet those voices and a way for me to like express my masculinity. Like I took a lot of pride in out drinking the football team at parties and stuff in high school. Mm. Um, So it was kind of this double tool for me. And I'm a big believer there's no such thing as like a maladaptive coping mechanism. I did Mm. what I needed to do to survive in Indiana high school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I had a solid drinking career from 14 to 25. And just by the end, it was pretty obvious that I had tried many things to fix myself and like was holding on very steadfastly to drinking. And like, certainly this isn't the thing. Certainly, this isn't the thing that has to give. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, and then I had to get honest that I was not living an authentic life. I wasn't behaving in a way that was in line with my values or in line with the community that I wanted to be a part of. And I hadn't even realized it. Mm. Um, Yeah, like I didn't quite have the dramatic rock bottom that I'd learned about growing up. So I figured I couldn't be one of those people. But you can quit whenever you want to, which mm. is lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't have the rock bottom and you didn't necessarily have the obvious, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, signs of somebody who needs to quit drinking, how did you discover that that was the path for you and, and what did it look like when you quit drinking? Mm-hmm. I definitely could tell there was like a spiritual void in my life. And just when I quit drinking, I looked around myself and I was like, I don't really talk to anybody besides my roommate. Like I am kind of a isolated cut off person. And I sat down and wrote down everything that I'd done in the last couple of years that embarrassed me or wasn't in line with my values or just felt off to who I wanted to be. And um, pretty much every single one of those incidents, I had either been drinking or using drugs or was trying to get to drugs and alcohol Mm. and i didn't get sober right after (laughs) making that list which i think is another red flag i'm like "Hmm, (laughs) interesting data set we'll uh address this never but i never yes yes yes. so then that middle part from having this understanding of here's my list of times where my values were defied to now i mean what's what's the roadmap there for you 
super smooth, super easy, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. no bumps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like my first week sober, like I did a solid week and I think it was the longest stretch I'd had since childhood and since in college, I lived in Morocco for a month and I lived with a Muslim family mm-hmm. and I was sober then. And I was like, why is this so marvelous? Why is everything so beautiful? And now I understand like, I was around people that looked like me and I was sober. Mm. It's an amazing combo. Mm. Um, But that first week in 2017, I was like sick. I was super sick. And I was like, certainly I caught a bug. Like, you know, who around me has the flu? Um, Mm. And then I got the shakes. And I realized I might be one of those people. Like I Mm -hmm. could not believe that I was at the point where I was physically dependent on alcohol, Mm. you know, like. Yeah, I drank every day, but I wasn't a blackout drunk. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I drank more than everyone around me, but, you know, they're just not as cool as me. Um, like, I made all of these rules for myself to explain away what was a very obvious problematic behavior when you took a single step back or a half step back. Right. So that was a big wake up call for me. And it was yeah, sometimes I'm embarrassed to mention this part, but like I was watching Shameless at the time and Lip was getting sober on the show and I'd never seen representation of someone in their 20s getting sober. Mm. And also like, you know, he went through a similar thing as me. Like I have a lot of religious trauma, like a lot of queer and trans folks and, you know, going to a church to try to fix something about myself, not at the top of my list of (laughs) desires. Right. But, you know, like learning from the show, you know, it's not necessarily Christian, but we can talk more about that later. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I would love to know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And just like really helps me kind of get over that first hurdle of fear. So it was free and it was widely available. And I still do 12 steps now, but I pretty much only go to meetings by and for trans folks. Uh Mm. which has been really nice. That wasn't something that existed really when I first got sober. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, that like first few months, I just remember the days feeling endless because I was so used to getting drunk at like noon. Like I was working on my master's thesis at the time and I'd go to breweries to write because I thought I was Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, a beat poet and like very creative. (laughs) But I was just day drinking. Like it was just an excuse for day drinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not getting hammered at noon or 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. I was like, what the fuck do people do in the evening? Mm-hmm. What do people do with all of this time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to, like, learn how to have a life, which I thought I had. But yeah, I, like, picked up rock climbing because a gym in my town stays open till 11. And I realized, like, I needed to stay busy like when my pink, when my pink, when my peak drinking hours would be. Like, lunch hour beer, maybe I'll hit a meeting. 3 p.m. dip, I'll go walk my dogs. Evening and night, I'll go climbing. And we'll just, you know, when your muscles are screaming, you're not necessarily thinking about drinking Mm. as much. And just noticing patterns in my life for the first time and the rhythms and trying to stay in step. Mm. Um, Mornings, mornings have been a thing. Who knew? I used to (laughs) sleep until noon all the time, hungover. And I'm like, wow, Mm. there's like a whole last day before noon. (laughs) I like what you said about learning how to have a life though, because I think that's really yeah. it. I think that so many of us remove alcohol from our lives and we realize, oh my God, what do I do with my free time? Do I have yeah. any hobbies? What do, what do I like to do? 
what makes me me if it's not drinking? Because drinking takes so much time between the thought of it and the act of it and then recovering from it. So Mm -hmm. I hear you saying that you used the 12 steps as a way to step into this and really had to figure out what it looks like for you on the other side of alcohol. What keeps you sober? Why did you stay sober? What did you find on the other side? A life that I didn't want to run from. I thought I had dealt with all of my baggage. Like, you know, I've been out of the closet for a very long time. When I got sober, I'd done everything I wanted to for my transition. Like, I felt comfortable with how I looked and how I moved through the world. Like, you know, I thought all of that baggage was over with. Um, And I still had a lot of shame that I had to work through. I always joke that no one warns you when you get sober that there's this thing called feelings. (laughs) <laughs> that exists that you might not have experienced since childhood. So therapy's great. Therapy's <laughs> really rad. 11 <laughs> out of 10 would recommend. Um, but, you know, once I worked through this shit and once I started to understand more of the root of my drinking, it's a lot easier to not drink when I don't want to run from anything. <laughs> and when I'm living an honest life that I'm not trying to constantly hide something and playing <laughs> this mental chess, it's just a lot simpler. <laughs> simpler and harder at the same time, but I, but I hear you on the the simple piece. I mean, there's, there's so much in there that I want to ask you about. And one of the things I wrote down and underlined was this idea of performing masculinity Mm -hmm. and using alcohol as such. So I would love to know how that has transformed for you over time, how your perception of masculinity and what Mm -hmm. feels good and aligned and authentic for you, if it is not alcohol. Ooh, that's a really great question. Yeah, I remember early in my drinking career, because again, like I didn't know trans masculine people existed. So I was like, oh, certainly I'm just, or not just, I'm, you know, a lesbian. That makes sense. And mm-hmm. I remember my parents were gone and sitting in my living room and I was like, I have to learn to like beer. Like this is mm-hmm. part of it. I must, mm-hmm. I must learn how to drink this disgusting substance in order to be <laughs> be a part of this crew, which isn't the case. Mm -hmm. And I mean, drinking is also so wrapped up in queer identity. Like I always ask folks, how many places can you name in your city that fly a rainbow flag year round that aren't bars? Mm -hmm. And it's usually very few, if not zero. But yeah, masculinity to me now, I don't even know. I just kind of feel like a gender void. I am Mm -hmm. just a hairy fairy that gets to move through life in a way that feels groovy. I like that though. I feel like that makes sense in this concept of like using something to align with some sort of societal construct. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like it's all so intertwined in what you said about earlier about, you know, you can't separate the two. You can't separate your identity from your sobriety and all of these Mm -hmm. things. I think that this idea of like taking the masculinity out of it makes a lot of sense to me once you've learned that you can take the alcohol part of it out too. Totally. Yeah. And like one of the gifts of recovery that was a total surprise through going to these like LGBTQ meetings, I've never had queer or trans elders in my life Mm. before. I've never had those intergenerational spaces. And, you know, seeing queer adults that made it, you know, Mm. past their 20s, I did not know how badly I needed to see that, how Mm. badly little me needed to see that a future was possible, that a sober future was possible. And it's rad to see 
people even younger than I was when I got sober coming into the rooms. And it's a rare space to have so many different experiences. I mean, you know, folks that survived two plagues sitting there and staying sober, like, I'm extremely grateful for the elders I've met. Hmm. You know, and, and to hear you speak about the 12 steps like that is is interesting because I'll be the first to admit that I have very, I guess, stereotypical uh, views of the 12 steps. I didn't get sober mm-hmm. through them. And from the outside looking in, I had a lot of misconceptions, I guess, or preconceptions, whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. And then I hear people like you saying there are new spaces, there are different spaces that are led for and by queer people. What has that evolution looked like for you, but also what you see in the 12 steps over time? Yes. (laughs) If I can ask. You know, you totally can. And like, also, I think a lot of folks' gut feelings about the programs can be right. Like I have been told not to talk about race or sexuality Mm -hmm. in the rooms Mm -hmm. because it's an outside issue. And that's something that I've always struggled with is this concept of an outside issue. Um, And if my existence is an outside issue, am I allowed to be here? Mm. And something that I always remember in moments like that, like, yes, Black folks were technically allowed to join 12-step programs from the beginning, but they weren't allowed to sit in the circle. They weren't Mm. allowed to touch the coffee pot and they couldn't participate in fellowship before or after the meeting. And I think there are ways that that has stayed in the program that people aren't quite conscious of. And you can see it pop up a lot when outside issues come up. Mm. Something that a trans old timer in the rooms said that sticks with me a lot, that kind of protects me in these spaces and is a shield for me. If something is causing you pain, it's not an outside issue. Right. And I think it can just be as simple as that. Yeah. When I, oh, where do I begin? (laughs) I was lucky enough to go to a queer meeting. I think it was my very second meeting. It's where I picked up my, my very first chip. And that helped a lot. Like, you know, we do a reading from the main text and people would be, you know, kind of laughing at the antiquated language or just being very open about like, well, I'm a fucking atheist. So here's what I think. (laughs) Um, So I'm really grateful that that was my introduction. And that definitely has not been the case across the board. Like I still am in disbelief when I go to a meeting and they end with the Lord's prayer. Mm. I'm like, (laughs) my siblings in Christ. Uh, (laughs) I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think is, this doesn't really jive with what I understand the program to be. And then when COVID hit and everything moved online, Mm. I was already going to online meetings through recovery Dharma and found a beautiful queer and trans community there. The very first like BIPOC meetings I ever went to were through Recovery Dharma. And that was just such a lovely space. And on social media, people just started sharing links. Like mm-hmm. I could not believe that there was a daily trans meeting. And I checked it out and I was like, there's like 40 fucking people here from <gasps> all over the world. And like, there's like three, I don't, there's many trans only meetings I can go to every single day online, mm-hmm. which is wild to me. So, you know, folks have realized recovery is not a one size fits all. And sometimes it's easier to heal when you don't have to explain your existence to someone. Mm. Um, I know some people struggle with affinity spaces and like, isn't this just segregation? And, you know, my black trans ass does not believe in segregation. Hot take Mm -hmm. might be surprising. (laughs) Hot take. Mm -hmm. But it is really nice to be in a space where you don't have to explain your existence. And Mm -hmm. if you're someone that's never had to explain your existence, that's privilege. Maybe take Mm -hmm. a beat to think on that. Mm -hmm. 
this idea of outside issues is so interesting because one of the things that's been coming up for me a lot and and I've been having conversations with other I don't know what you want to call us creators in the sober space of this recording is June 28th. So we are officially four days after the overturning of Roe. And many of us are receiving feedback from our communities. I guess feedback would be the nice way of saying it, but to leave, (laughs) quote unquote, leave politics out of sobriety. And that many people in our communities come to what we teach and what we share and what we create for their sobriety, but they don't want to hear what we believe and what our viewpoints mm-hmm. are. And I believe that my politics, my, my, my sobriety is political. Like my sobriety yes. is inextricable from what I believe in my value systems and, and the spaces I hold and the things that I say. And with this idea of outside issues and the fact that, you know, what you said earlier about like, this is inextricable from who you are, like, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to this idea of like, keep these things separate, keep this over in this box, this over here, this over here, don't bring this over here. What do you say about that? Yes. Wouldn't it be nice if everything were so neat and tidy? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, you know, I, I am sending so much love to people that are struggling with their sobriety, go to a space of healing, get vulnerable, and then get shut down because what they're saying is quote unquote too political because mm. I've been there and it fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. And again, as simple as if something is causing you pain, it belongs here. Mm. I don't know. Like one of the key tenets of black feminism is the personal is political. Mm-hmm. Like folks think that this is such a polarizing word and you know, not everything has to be political. It is like, <laughs> it is. And I just, I mean, this attack on just bodily autonomy, seeing the rollback of something that should just be somebody's innate right, mm-hmm. just explode because of some crusty old motherfuckers in black robes. Like uh, that phrase just made my heart sing just for like a minute. Yeah. <laughs> my my dad is bless his heart. He he went to law school a long time ago. He's got some pretty rad politics and just. The things he says about the court and Clarence Thomas keep me going (laughs) many days. Just bless his heart. But I mean, you can't keep these things out of the rooms. And I remember the same thing happening around the election. And that's actually when I heard that quote of if something is bringing you pain, you can talk about it here. Hmm. Because people are saying, like, don't mention the elections in meetings. It's like, what am I supposed to do? And the summer of 2020, which is a very hard summer to be a Black American, Hmm. I went to way fewer meetings than I should have because Mm -hmm. I really did not want to hear anybody's take. I know the demographics of the rooms, even, you know, these queer and trans affinity spaces that I love, it's still usually like 80% white, Mm -hmm. 80% white and skewing towards men or masculine folks. And Mm -hmm. like, I did not want to hear anybody's takes. You know, I was Mm -hmm. at a protest that month and almost got shot at a protest. Like every single time a black person is lynched on film and people are sharing it endlessly. Like I want to drink, I want to drink at white supremacy. And I know Mm. that's not going to fix anything. And I know I should have, could have, would have gone to meetings, but to protect myself, 12 steps didn't necessarily feel like an option. Mm -hmm. But you didn't drink at white supremacy. Yeah. Didn't drink some, somehow, (laughs) somehow. And you know, I was, I was, digging into some of your work earlier and 
I saw you speak about how not drinking is like kind of an F you to white supremacy in general and this act of resistance by mm-hmm. not consuming this substance, which is, is self-harm in many ways. Well, mm-hmm. not, I'm not putting that on you for me. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Like I always considered it self-harm the way yeah. that I would drink was harmful to myself, even though it would be as a result of all of these things. So when you step back and you think about being a person who has so many different identities and so many different places that you, that are, that are integral to the person that you show up as, what does Mm -hmm. your sobriety mean for you in all of this? Yeah. I mean, I love that you said your sobriety is a political act and I 100% agree. Bringing up my dad again, one of my favorite humans, he has never drank a day in his life. He grew up around a lot of men who used alcohol to cope, especially his dad, who I actually never met. And that was a real act of love and protection that my dad did. He knew this was an abusive man and he just made the call like, you won't meet him. Mm. And, you know, recognizing there's not one side to any human. Like this was a man that grew up in a segregated Catholic orphanage. Mm. Like he did not have an easy life by any means. And alcohol is a really easy way to cope, Mm -hmm. you know? Therapy in the black community in the fifties and sixties was not, that's not, that's not a thing. Right. right? And what's something that's available and everywhere. And so that's how my dad saw a lot of folks in his life cope with centuries of racial trauma, honestly. And he decided to not. And a quote that I really love, I don't know who said it, but it ran in my family until it ran into me. Mm. And my dad's that person. My dad's that wall. Mm. And I just believe that me being able to face the world with clear eyes and sadly, sometimes an open heart, Mm. I can be the person I want to be and affect the change that I think I can actually manage. Mm. (laughs) I, yeah, just, there's a very clear history too of drugs and alcohol being mobilized against the BIPOC community. And, you know, taking a step back from that and seeing how many radical BIPOC movements were intentionally sunk by substances. And again, you know, a lack of alternative services. Mm. It's yeah, my sobriety is political. And sometimes it is painful, but Mm. it is always worthwhile. Mm. For people who are listening, and this might be a new perspective for them, and they maybe have never thought about this history of movements being sunk by substances or anything can you give us like give us like a Mm -hmm. cliff notes of how this one topic substance use challenges of substance Mm -hmm. use and the BIPOC and or queer communities how do these intersect Ooh, girl okay I know I'm I'm asking Um, for the cliff notes because I know you could give us a dissertation yeah I was like let me get my powerpoint ready (laughs) Um, so I mean I'll bring it like all the way back I'm the first person in my family to go back to West Africa since enslavement. Hmm. And that was a very big deal for me. That was a big turning point. And I went to a slave castle when I was there, Cape Coast Castle. It's where most folks who are African-American, where our ancestors came from. And I have tried many times to put words to that experience. And I cannot. My dog is trying to. (laughs) Thank you, baby. She's like, oh, it was rough. It's okay, baby. It's okay. And I realized years later, working on my PhD, that all of the folks that worked in that castle that kept the slave trade alive were paid in rum. 
And I find that just so interesting that it wasn't money. It wasn't food. It was rum and tobacco Hmm. and just how integral from the beginning alcohol. Yeah. Right. Like something about that really shifted something tectonic in me. Just like that understanding of my family ended up here, you know, because of white supremacy and Mm settler colonialism and alcohol was a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then hopscotching around during enslavement masters would often get my ancestors would get enslaved africans intoxicated for their own amusement and like make them fight and whatnot frederick Douglass talks about this in his autobiography frederick Douglass was sober because he also saw this as a way for white supremacy to control our communities like it's Mm. not a new notion by any means then jumping forward to you know the civil rights movement it was very clear that we had to take care of ourselves and each other and folks like the Black Panthers doing that by, you know, I grew up believing the Black Panthers were bad guys. I was Mm -hmm. fed very much the line of like, MLK was the only good guy that's ever existed in Black history. Mm -hmm. And when he was alive, a majority of Americans wanted him dead. Like they took a poll on that. Um, We've really kind of cleaned up history. You know, the Black Panthers were feeding kids before school. The Black Panthers were providing free groceries and education. And one of my favorite kind of radical BIPOC history stories involves sobriety and it's the takeover of the Bronx Lincoln Hospital. I think it was the 70s, the Young Lords, which was a radical Puerto Rican organization, and some Black Panthers took over a hospital because they were seeing the heroin epidemic in their community and they were seeing no one doing shit. Mm -hmm. You know, they were told to just drop people off at this hospital if they were ODing or withdrawing. They weren't treated like humans, you know, folks didn't really quite understand how to handle addiction yet. Cops definitely weren't helping. So they took over a whole wing of a hospital and set up their own recovery unit. Hmm. And they were pretty successful. They went to Chinatown because they're like, well, you know, it's an opioid. Opium. What's something we can do outside of this medical system that might help? So AccuDetox actually came out of this. And all of the first licensed black acupuncturists in the U.S. were Black Panthers. Huh. Yeah. Like putting together so, strings over here in my brain. Right. I know. That's what I always yeah. feel like. That guy yeah. at the board with all the string. And I'm like, I swear, uh-huh. it's all connected. It's all connected. <laughs> but just this radical act of communal love of like, we hmm. see this need in the community for folks who want to get sober and there isn't a space for them. And they mm. said, we will take it and yeah. make it. Right. And it was open for years. And a lot of those practices are still used. Like AccuDetox is wide, like super popular still. Mm. And a lot of people that got sober through that program are still sober. If you've been around here for a minute, you know that therapy has been one of the most essential tools mentioned in the success stories of folks building a life without alcohol. In fact, as a therapist who's in therapy myself, I'm one of the biggest cheerleaders of connecting with a licensed professional and talking about the joys and struggles of changing our relationship with alcohol. That's why we're happy to partner with BetterHelp, a digital therapy platform that offers licensed therapists trained to listen and help you. BetterHelp has a network of over 20,000 therapists with a broad range of expertise, giving you online convenient access to support. It's easy. Fill out a questionnaire describing your specific needs and you'll be matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours. In addition to your secure video or phone therapy sessions, you can exchange unloaded messages with your therapist between the meetings. 
Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge with their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash sober stories. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash sober stories. So with this, I mean, with this ancient history, all the way back to being paid in rum, to where we are now, what do you see the recovery field getting wrong with <laughs> this idea of intersectionality and actually helping people and oh, I mean, we can get into like access and all that? What are, what are we getting wrong? Yeah. Ooh, girl, you asked some good questions. <laughs> I and mean, we gutted. I shouldn't say we, I'm not going to take ownership of what the United yeah. States government has done. Yeah. <laughs> the U.S. government gutted funding for mental health services. And I feel like we see that pop up all the time about like, we need more access and nothing is actually getting done. Like mm-hmm. there's still not enough beds for folks. You know, I am someone that's lived with mental illness for a very long time. I have done inpatient stuff. Not a good time. Mm-hmm. Not a good time for me. Um, mm-hmm. So slashing that funding did not help. And the fact that like the best recovery services can pretty much only be accessed by those with money or those with really good insurance Mm -hmm. is a problem. I think there's still not great standards for centers. I want to say I could not go to rehab because I'm trans. I've talked to other trans folks and it's a pretty common experience. They just didn't know what to do with me. I could go to some, but they wouldn't let me bring my testosterone because it's considered a controlled substance. And I'm like, wow, well, that's medicine for me. Right. Right. And I could have really benefited from that, I think. So just these kind of things that seem like small gaps to people actually result in hundreds and thousands of deaths. Hmm. So we just need basic, better public services. We also need to understand that the 12 steps aren't the end all be all one size fits all model because i think Mm -hmm. a majority of rehab centers still kind of use that as the backbone of their model and you know i go to a lot of queer and trans meetings where people were like i was not super stoked about all of this god talk like you can say all you Mm -hmm. want that you can be agnostic and higher power but still all i'm seeing and hearing is a white jesus Mm -hmm. so expanding our understanding of other recovery programs and customized recovery programs I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's such a map of industry, which right. is so disgusting. And when I, I ask as a person who is part of the industry, who is a white woman, who is part of the industry. And when you talked about the 12 step meetings and not being able to touch the coffee pot, I had a moment of, well, fuck, I didn't know that. And I talk about the 12 steps not being accessible for women and how the how women were not included in the big book. And here I didn't know about the coffee pot and understanding like the gaps in my own intersectionality and the places where I still have so much to learn. And I also observe this field being led by a lot of white people and led by a lot of cis hetero people and a lot of women. And I know that we are missing so much and there's so many people being left behind. One of the things you mentioned is this idea of like rehab didn't know what to do with you and didn't know Mm -hmm. where to put you and testosterone was an issue. I know 
like medical access in general is something that you talk about a lot and mm-hmm. is something that you've encountered a lot of a lot of struggles with. Does that inform this work or is that interconnected with this work? Do you have any thoughts on that informed question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I do. I mean, and I appreciate I appreciate all the points that you made before that as well. And that's kind of why I've I've taken a step back from the recovery mm-hmm. community. Like I feel like I was very much on kind of like I try to share what I think is helpful and useful, especially to folks from my community. But um, like the summer of 2020, I was invited to do so many recovery talks. And I feel like a lot of Mm. programs were realizing like, oh shit, do we not have any black people? And is there a reason for that? Um, And that stopped after that summer. Mm. You know, everyone kind of was like, yep, we had that person do a one hour lecture. And they were black, gay, and trans. So triple mm. check, we are done with intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And that's not how actual change happens. So it's been really heartbreaking to see in the recovery community, these conversations like pretty much stop outside of spaces that are by and for BIPOC folks. I mean, and what you're saying too about the medical industrial complex, that is totally tied into this. Like mm. they did a study of medical students And a majority of them believed that black people inherently had a higher pain tolerance, which is like so wackadoodle to me. Like crazy. (laughs) You're in med school, Hobie. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's been reflected in my experience. Like I have had some mysterious medical issues that I might actually have the answers for now. Okay. I was totally going to ask about that because (laughs) I saw somebody else on TikTok with the same thing. And then I saw your stories and I was like, oh my God, it's the same thing. The Daily Harvest thing. Yeah. I yeah. wasn't going to name them. I was like, I really hope they're not a sponsor. Maybe they, I are ask not, no, they are not. No, <laughs> no, you were okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, because of potential corporate poisoning, mm-hmm, I was in the mm-hmm. ER a lot the last few years and it is not a fun place for a trans person to be. We, mm-hmm. um, I do a lot of like medical trainings for providers of like, here's how not to be an absolute asshole to a trans person that just needs antibiotics. Hmm. So it's sometimes hard for me to be in those situations where like, I can speak to a room full of doctors about this. But when it's me one on one, I'm like, you can call me whatever you call me. So I could just get through this fucking interaction. Hmm. And then you know, the guilt I have after that, and I've ruined this for every trans person after me. Hmm. But um, anyways, in the trans community, there's something called like trans broken arm syndrome. And depending on what brings me to the ER, I might not disclose I'm trans. Like if I'm Mm. there because I broke my wrist playing soccer, I might not mention that I'm trans depending on like the vibes that I get. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for me, everything that happened in the last two years involves my belly. So I had to let people know like, yes, I have this luscious beard and I also am rocking a uterus. Mm -hmm. So we should probably think about that with some Mm. of what's happening. and just. You can go through all of medical school and not learn anything about LGBTQ people. It's not a requirement in the U.S. for medical providers. The University of New Mexico's med school includes a unit during their OBGYN rounds. And like, shout out to them. I've been on the panels for that. And like, that is going to change so many things. Like the new generation of doctors I've got a lot of hope with. And I had some positive medical experiences Mm -hmm. recently. So I'm getting some hope that things are changing. Like, you know, the first time I was offered pain meds in the ER was because I had a black queer nurse Mm. who understood that 
<laughs> right. We don't she, have a lower pain yeah. tolerance. Yeah, they don't like, give a lower pain tolerance, right? No, she was like, ooh, honey, you look like you're in pain. I'm like, you know what? You're right, nurse. Mm. Look at you mm. doing your job. Mm-hmm. So I've got some hope that the industry is changing. But yeah, I mean, the recovery world is still intertwined with the medical industrial complex, especially when it comes to like rehab centers and the fact that rehab centers are so entwined with the 12 steps still. Yes. I sometimes feel like I'm talking about like the sober Illuminati. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'm telling you though, I have a lot of thoughts about the recovery field from the mental health side. That's the side I come to it from Mm -hmm. as a clinician and seeing what I was taught in grad school. I mean, the only substance use class I was taught was a dual diagnosis class. So it was Mm -hmm. mental health and substance use. And all that was taught was the 12 steps. And so that was part of what kept me drinking for so long is I thought that was my only option and it didn't align Mm -hmm. with me. And then, you know, hoping and stepping into this field and being surrounded by people who are talking about this differently and feeling optimistic and then going back and doing some continuing education. And it's all so old school and so outdated Mm -hmm. and then being a person who also utilizes the mental health field with with therapy and with psychiatry and like going into spaces and then having all sorts of questions about medication if i'm sober and it's just it's so intertwined and i think i think we're probably a decade behind at least in the mental health field and that is not even considering like how we interact with the queer community. Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about having hope for this, how do you, how do you, how do you live in the now when we're still where we are? Mm. Good question. <laughs> how do you not just fall into a pit of despair? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess like that was like... a really grim question if I think about <laughs> no, it. But, but when we have real. so many different forces at work that are impacting this, these outside issues that are actually impacting our daily lives and our mm-hmm. ability to stay sober because they are so difficult and traumatic and and even more so for the communities that you're in. I guess a better question, what brings you joy? How do you how do you <laughs> what brings get you happiness joy? in this? Many things. I used to teach peace studies at the university and would talk about a lot of very depressing things. Like peace studies sounds like it might be chill, mm-hmm. not when it's being taught by me. Um, <laughs> But I would always try to include, you know, like, and here's the folks that were fighting. Here's the folks that are doing the work. And that's what Mr. Rogers always said. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're scared, look for the helpers. Mm -hmm. And I learned that as a toddler. And that has gotten me to my 30s. Um, Mm -hmm. Look for the helpers. Because there are people doing the work. And if I've learned anything in recovery, it's that I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And so me and... One of my good friends, Leon, who works for the Trans Lifeline and is just like an incredible trans educator, we were asked to do a continuing ed course about trans folks and substance use disorder. Hmm. And I was like, oh, just even this ask feels mm-hmm. rad. And then we get to the actual event and it was like, I think it was 80 something people, which mm. I was not anticipating and folks coming with like good questions and like being vulnerable about like, I just didn't learn any of this in school. and yeah. like. I'm seeing trans patients more than I thought I would. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to fuck this up. And it's like, this is giving me hope for the future. Mm. (laughs) So seeing some shifts, but it still needs to happen on a larger scale. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, we offered one continuing ed credit, but that's not something you need for your social work degree or to become a psychiatrist. Mm -mm. 
and you know same for medical schools but the things that bring me joy dogs <laughs> i feel like dogs are an essential part of recovery the real heroes <laughs> you know they get me up in the morning i go to the rio grande every day with them mm. they just stare at me with like endless love and compassion when i feel like an absolute pail of shit they're like mm -hmm. You're inherently good. I'm like, Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> Stop it. Beautiful angels. <laughs> yeah. And just like taking care of them reminds me to take care of myself. Because like I'll be giving them dinner and I'm like, did I eat today? Is mm. this why I'm being a bit of a monster? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dogs give me joy. My family brings me joy. They're just some incredible humans doing incredible work. And I just thank my lucky stars every day that like roll of the dice uterus that I ended up in was Carol's shout out to Carol. You're a shout out to Carol. <laughs> shout out to Carol. Uh, music. I come from a very big music family growing up that kept me alive. Like I did not have words to describe. Like I don't want boobs. Oh fuck. Mm -hmm. Everyone around me does. Mm -hmm. What does this mean? You know, I didn't have words for that. I certainly didn't have therapy, but I had a viola mm. and depressing Russian composers who I'm like, this guy gets it. Rachmaninoff, <laughs> Tchaikovsky, you understand. Yep. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, Shostakovich, you've gone through it, buddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, like that's, that's brought me endless joy and been my key point of connection with others since mm. I was like six. Mm. Um, you know, I left the classical world because it was not super fun. Like, it was cool. You know, I fucks with playing some Mahler symphonies. Um, <laughs> but, you know, now I'm in this, like, cute little queer indie folk band. I lean in the in-betweens and, you know, oh, I love played it. on a float in Pride. And I was I in booty it. shorts. Like, it was much different than this stuffy concert hall. Yeah, that brings me joy. Nature brings me joy so much. Like, my garden, like, I've yeah. turned in to my grandmother's. Um, <laughs> I recently got my yard certified as a wildlife refuge and oh just the gosh, process amazing. of that it just made me realize like oh i am part of this entire ecosystem mm. like part of it it started off as me being competitive um <laughs> like many things in my life like i can definitely do this i can plant these things i can i can do these things but like you know understanding how close am i to these water sources what animals can i nurture with these things mm. which plants go together and, you know, like recovery teaches you very quickly that you're not alone and mm -hmm. your story is not the only story in the universe like yours. You're not the worst person that's ever existed. Mm -hmm. And there is some piece of connection between everything. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. it sounds like Illuminati conspiracies, um, but everything is connected, I believe. Yes. And just planting myself in this ecosystem just kind of stretched that even even more for me, just like mm. noticing more bees in my yard and mm -hmm. hummingbirds. And it just brings me so much joy to see everything connected and everything alive. Mm. I love that. I feel like, too, I've, I've been pretty heartsick the last couple of days. And I feel yeah. like talking to you makes me feel very peaceful today. Oh, good. And hearing what brings you joy makes me feel joy as well. And even if it comes from a place of competition, I get that. As long as we get, <laughs> the, get, to, get to the end result, right? Yeah. You say, look to the helpers. Who are the helpers in this community, any community that you look to? Mm. Katie of Sober Black Girls Club yes. has done yes. so much work. 
I'm very grateful to have found her, to have, Mm -hmm. you know, the opportunities to talk to her. Oh, there's so many people. (laughs) (laughs) Put you on the spot there. Can I send you a bibliography? Yes, I would love Um, it. We'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just, and it's not even doing things like at a massive scale. Mm -hmm. I worked professionally in the recovery world for a couple of years. It was very hard. It was a very expensive program Mm -hmm. that was extremely, extremely white. Mm -hmm. And I had the pleasure of facilitating the BIPOC calls Mm -hmm. for that community. And those humans are some of the kindest, gentlest, smartest, wisest humans I've ever met in my Mm -hmm. life. And having the honor of being even like a sliver of their recovery journey and being able to hear their stories and celebrate their wins. Yeah. Mm. Those folks are the helpers. Like I'm a firm believer that when you transform yourself, when you change yourself for the better, that it ripples out mm. pretty endlessly. And to be mm. in a community of folks doing that and to witness those ripples happen, that gives me hope. So I mm. think we're all we're all the helpers, slowly but surely. Yeah. And sometimes it can feel selfish doing this work, self-help, self-care. Mm. But I strongly believe that healing ourselves heals our communities and heals our ancestors. Like my yes. grandpa, there was no chance in hell he was going to get sober in his lifetime. Mm. And my dad stepped up and you know decided it ran in the family until it ran into him. And I had that example my entire life of this strong black man who coped with America, mm. you know, with a clear heart and a clear mind. Mm. That rippled out to me. I got sober. I get to talk to folks every day that are entering recovery. I get a lot of DMs that are like, I'm trans. You're the only trans sober person I know. Yeah. What the fuck do I do? And seeing those folks, you know, pick up chicks, <laughs> pick up chicks, pick up chips. Brody and Slip. <laughs> I hope they also pick, ch- pick up chicks if they would like to. Uh, yeah, they probably do. Yeah, super babes. <laughs> super babes. Definitely picking up chicks. <laughs> It definitely was Freudian. Well, well, we'll leave that in. That was a good one. I liked that one. Perfect. Perfect. But yeah, you know, seeing folks heal themselves and heal the world around Mm them. Mm -hmm. um, I have hope. Like, I feel great joy in witnessing Gen Z. Like, it was very funny. Hell yes. Being a college professor and looking like a um, (laughs) 12-year-old. But, like, seeing these kids who were... They're not kids. I mean, they're adults, but they're 18. Like, Mm -hmm. I wanted to protect them from the world and tell them to not come stoned to my class. <laughs> um, which I was, I mean, weed was another big yeah. hard part of my journey. So it was hard to witness sometimes, but like mm. what these folks knew at 18 took me so much longer to understand. Oh, and yeah. like, I was like, Oh, I'm so excited for y'all to pick up the wheel. Like and witnessing Gen Z and work. Yeah. Like they got boundaries. They got boundaries in their twenties. Like it's yeah. so that's awesome the best phrase. That the kids are all right, right? Yes, oh, the kids 100%. are all right. I yeah. actually had the joy of watching. I don't know if they're technically in Gen Z still, but probably about a twelve-year-old, maybe just like eviscerate somebody at a Pride festival recently who mm. was protesting, and I'm like. Yes, please. She was she was like getting getting after it and just had the best arguments and the best comebacks. And this person who was protesting this Pride Festival was just like gobsmacked. I'm like, oh, thank you. Bless you. You're you're doing it. Thank you. It's <laughs> wonderful. That. I I work at a camp 
it's called chords and it's a music camp for queer and trans kids and it like blows my mind i'm like here you are a preteen knowing who you are being able to articulate it and like watching them connect with each other i just cry the entire time that's Mm -hmm. just what i'm known for (laughs) just sobbing and happy for the kiddos but like the emotional intelligence Mm. it just blows me away but i would also give you some credit for that because you and the people of your generation paved the way for them to be able to even have the language for it and to be able to have the safe spaces to be able to Mm. be 12 years old and be able to speak about this in the ways that maybe our generation couldn't a decade two decades ago thank you for that yeah Yeah, we like we do an event called ask an elder and i was like this is silly i'm not an elder look at this smooth smooth face (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with quite a few grays coming through but i mean it's it's very real it like it just blows my mind how different their lives are like my mom teaches junior high and high school and like has trans kiddos one of her trans kids is going to stanford next year yeah. and like amazing i also love that people know like her her trans kiddos know that like mrs letcher will throw hands for you mm-hmm. tell me who is messing up I will handle it. Like, you know, she put her teaching license on the line so that trans kids could simply go on an overnight field trip. Hmm. She was like, kids deserve this. Man, we stand Carol. Can we get Carol She's, on the podcast next time? Carol's a queen. God bless her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like also to her students' credits, all of them, the issues aren't with the other kids. It's with the parents. Yeah. Right. And just totally. like hearing some of the things her students are doing. I'm like, what? <laughs> like it's just it's beautiful to see the kids are all right kids are well all right. if your story were to be told the story of you and alcohol what would it be called Ooh. i think until it ran into me and mm. i think it wouldn't be just about me but my family's story mm. intergenerational trauma is real and so is intergenerational healing my dad's in therapy which like not a lot of people can say like, put your boomer dads in therapy. Let me tell you people, Mm. bully your parents into therapy. (laughs) But watching him unpack shit and like hearing about him doing breathing exercises Mm. and like recognizing like, oh, that's a trigger because this thing happened in my childhood. It's like, Mm. yes, look at you go. Mm. Yeah, it ran in my family until it ran into me. Mm. I hope you write that book someday. I think I would enjoy that one. We'll see. We'll see. It's going to have a lot of maps, a lot of <laughs> sober Illuminati facts. <laughs> yeah, we'll have our, our little pins with our red lines everywhere. It's real. It's real. <laughs> well, I just so appreciate your time and your story and it, the things that I have already learned from this 60-minute conversation. I thank you for that. It's not your job. And I still appreciate that you are helping me grow in this and and those who are listening to this. So I know our people are going to want to connect with you. Where can they find you? What do you have going on in your world? What kind of work do you have that they can consume? Yeah. Well, I want to say also thank you for having me. I could have talked to you forever. Thank you for passing <laughs> the mic and recognizing that's something that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on Instagram. Someone described my account as Thirst Traps for Justice. And Thirst Traps for Justice. I really love it. Really love it. Very true. But that's the letter L dot nuzzles. Mm. I post all of my writing and upcoming performances on my website, LazarusLecture.com. 
I had a piece just come out. Today is the 53rd anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. Yes, that's right. Which is exciting. So I just had a piece come out about, you know, celebrating pride. Not Mm. always easy as a sober person. Definitely not easy as a historian. Mm. It's really not easy as a historian. But um, yeah, you know, recognizing how big our history is and that we still have each other's backs. So you can Mm. read that. That's out now. Do I have anything happening? I think that's it. I'm living a very low-key life. I love it. You deserve a low-key life in your garden where you're just connecting with your (laughs) natural habitat. What's a certified natural habitat? I love it. You deserve that. Thank you so much for your time today, Lazarus. This has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. See what I mean about this conversation being a balm in these hard times? Laz gave us a masterclass on intersectionality and recovery, and they did so while being such a kind and warm person. I've got a new person to add to my helpers list, the ones I'll look to when times feel too hard. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.